and we're going to go straight to the reading this morning in Matthew chapter 17. I'll be reading from Matthew chapter 17 verses 1 through 8. Matthew chapter 17 says, After six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, the brother of James, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. There he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. Just then there appeared before them Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I will put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, a bright cloud covered them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell face down to the ground, terrified. But Jesus came and touched them. Get up, he said. Don't be afraid. When they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Uh, so I, I was been thinking about what to share this week and um, was drawn to this passage because um, I'm wanting it to prepare us well for prayer week, which kicks off next Sunday. So this is the week to sign up for all your prayer slots. Um, and you don't have to come just once. You can come multiple times if you'd like. And so if you, if you missed last week's teaching, it was also a teaching helping to prepare us for not only prayer week, but for 2024. And the same kind of thing like kind of stirred inside of me this week as I was thinking about the need for us to be spiritually awake. When I say spiritually awake, that's an important distinction. Because we can be physically awake and yet spiritually asleep. We can be awake to things of this world, but not attuned fully to the things of the kingdom of heaven. The unseen. You know, it was Frederick Beekner who wrote that, as far as I know, there has never been an age that has not produced fairy tales. He says the reason that fairy tales are so universal is that they teach us what we most need to know about life. They tell us that things are not often what they seem uh, or what they appear to be. So for example, the ugly frog is really a prince or the lovely stepmother we find is actually a witch, right? They tell us that there's this other world that our current seen world points to, that the world is not so far away that, and, and that we're certainly not in control of it. They tell, you know, they tell us these fairy tales, tales that stepping in into a wardrobe or falling down a rabbit hole or rubbing a lamp somehow introduces us to this whole new reality, right? What was ordinary suddenly becomes the vehicle to the extraordinary. And often the problem with fairy tales is that because of a curse or a spell, someone has fallen into some kind of death sleep, you know what I mean? Um, from which they're powerless to awake on their own. And so maybe it's the bite of a poison apple or the prick of a spinning wheel or a nap that lasts like 20 years. But these stories, I think the reason they endure is because in, in many ways they're our story. We find ourselves blind to these urgent matters as if we too have been spellbound. But sometimes we do awaken from that enchanted sleep. Where a guy named Bill W. awakens one day to the reality that he's a hopeless addict and founds, forms, Alcoholics Anonymous. Where in Gone with the Wind, Scarlett O'Hara finally awakens to the truth that she's actually in love with Rhett Butler and not Ashley Wilkes. Where Ebenezer Scrooge actually awakens to the pain of his miserly past and the possibility of a generous future. 
we might awaken to our own failure as parents or our own workaholism or the reality that we've been living in fear or anger for way too long. We might awaken to a new passion, maybe for music or for surfing or, or, or even awaken to a calling to fight racism or poverty. Or maybe we'll just awaken to God himself. This is what happens in the Bible all over the place. Think about it. A fugitive from Egypt named Moses sees a bush. He's passed that bush a hundred times, but this time it's on fire. And he turns aside and he hears the voice of God. The story of the Bible, it's like a fairy tale because it points us to another deeper, at times unseen reality. And only the difference is the story of the Bible is true. It actually happened. And in ancient Israel, students in their training and in their studies were introduced to three paths of knowing the truth and reality. One was through observation of this world. We still use that today, don't we? Science, observing, you know, that kind of thing. Report of the learning of others. We still use that today, don't we? It's called research, you know? And the third one was the direct encounter with the transcendent one. And they validated that as a form of knowledge. And it's that last path that I want to spend some time reflecting on this morning. Direct encounter with the transcendent God of the universe. So imagine in our text this morning, you're standing there on a mountain called Mount Tabor. You know, over and over throughout the scriptures, people have these kinds of encounters with God on mountaintops. You know, the Bible is, among many things, a book about mountains, you might say, you know? They're mentioned hundreds of times, like when Moses encounters that burning bush, it's on what is called the mountain of God in Exodus 3. It was Mount Sinai where God made his covenant with the people and and the people chose instead to keep God at a distance. It was on a mountain, remember, where Elijah heard that still, small voice of God. It was on a mountain where Elijah also had the showdown with the prophets of Baal. See, mountains, they show, they show up all over the scriptures. And mountains mark a special place even in the life and ministry of Jesus. It was on a high mountain that he renounced the temptation to receive all the kingdoms of the world. Remember that? It was on a mountain that he chose his disciples. It was the most famous talk in human history is the Sermon on the Mount. The most famous and influential death in history was on a hill called the Mount of Calvary where humanity witnessed the extent of God's love. The most famous and influential mission in history to make disciples who will obey Jesus in everything was given by Jesus to his disciples at the mountain where he told them to go, is what it says in the end of Matthew 28. A mountain is where heaven and earth often come closest together. A mountain is where we go to see the earth from a whole different viewpoint a whole different perspective, right? A new perspective altogether on a mountain. We're elevated above our normal things of life, our normal way of seeing. And obstacles, oftentimes, that seem really large when 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 we're down and in the thick of it, often seem quite small when we get that larger perspective. From a mountain, we can see parts of the world that were not visible to us below. On a mountain, we receive the gift of vision. And so we're told that one day, Jesus went up on a mountainside and called to him those he wanted and they came to him. He appointed 12, is what it says in Mark 3, designating them apostles, get this, that they might be with him. 
The idea wasn't just that they would occupy the same space. You know, the idea was that actually Jesus meant they would become close to him, become like intimate friends, that they would open their hearts to him, they would learn from him, they'd be transparent with him, they would enjoy and admire him, and they would trust him, but then they'd also be undone and then remade by him as well. Jesus called them on a mountain because his calling, in a, in a sense, is like a mountaintop experience. The disciples, they awaken in this moment to purpose and to identity that they did not have prior to that. Even the day before, their primary calling was simply to be with Jesus. And, and it happened as he said it would. And so after Jesus left the earth, two of his friends got in trouble with the religious leaders. And we talked about this last Sunday. When they saw, it says in in Acts chapter 4, when they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished. And they took note that these men had been with Jesus. There it is again. Which shows us the principle that actually it's better to be unschooled and ordinary with Jesus than schooled and ordinary without Jesus. Schooled and extraordinary without Jesus. See, the mountain is a place of awakening to a reality that we often can't see in the valley. Above all, it's an awakening to the gospel of Jesus, the availability of life and life to the fullest here and now, life in the presence and the power and the grace and the care of God here and now. Charles Taylor, in his, in his famous book, A Secular Age, explores why faith is so hard for so many people, and particularly for those in the West. He notes that Uh, 500 years ago, it was hard for people not to believe in God. But today, all of us, even believers, he says, live in a valley of doubt. We live in what he calls an imminent frame. What that means is like it's a boxed-in way of viewing the world that simply assumes this material world is all that exists, right? And and, and according to this view, we live in, uh, like his his analogy is like, we live in like a terrarium. You know what that is? It's like the the glass thing that you keep in, you know, like reptiles or in, you know, with a terrarium, you know, it's this large, complex, cosmic terrarium, but it's got a lid on it, is the way that he describes it. So however, what we long for is, is this fullness of life, of real life, of moral goodness and ennobling beauty and truly responsible lives, but we're, we're no longer confident in a transcendent spiritual and moral realm that makes any of that even real or possible. So, we too need a mountain moment. We need an awakening moment. There is another world. Things are not always what they seem. As the psalmist cries out, O sleeper, awake. That's why the story of what we read this morning is called the transfiguration of Jesus and why it plays such a prominent role in the New Testament. It's our journey, in a sense, through the wardrobe or down the rabbit hole uh, and up the beanstalk. It's our glimpse into another world that enables us to live wide awake in this one. It begins this way. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, the brother of James, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. There he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. Just then there appeared before, uh, before them Moses and Elijah, talking with Jesus. It's like, in this moment, the lid is ripped off the terrarium, right? You can imagine, they're just mind, their minds must be blown. And, and, and the likely reason for Matthew telling us the... the the time frame in the beginning there, like the six days, is that actually throughout the scripture, six days is used regularly in the Bible as the number of days needed to prepare for a transcendent experience. In creation, happened for six days. 
And then on the seventh day, God invited people to the experience of Sabbath. Sabbath delight, rest in my presence. For six days, the glory of God covered Mount Sinai in a cloud. And on the seventh day, God called to Moses to enter into that cloud. Here in Matthew, six days have passed since Peter confessed at Caesarea Philippi that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. You can see that just back in chapter 16. The call to the mountaintop does not come on our timetable. It comes just at the right time, not our time. The sixth day, not the first day. Then he invites Peter and James and John to this experience. He wants, he wants them to share this experience with them because he knows that's going to create a new level of relationship, a closer, more intimate one. And, and they could have, you know, flagged it and begged off. You know, they could have said, so, you know, no, we've got so much work to do for you, Jesus, that we just don't have time to go be with you, uh, you know. And so, they, you know, but Peter and James and John, look, through the Gospels, they got heaps of stuff wrong and they missed the point over and over and over again. But we can give them credit for this one. They got this right when they said, yes, okay, we're coming with you. And, and it's worth pausing to think about the role of experience in awakening to God for these fellows too. Dallas Willard said that persons are made up of experiences. We don't, we're not merely, you know, or, or primarily cells and tissue, uh, you know, that actually our lives consist of a series of experiences. That's why we treasure a sunset or a great meal or a view from a mountain because People often use their cell phones to take pictures of themselves in, in such times. You know, we, we even call them selfies, right? You know, but, but we don't take selfies at random. It's not like you wake up in the morning and be like, oh, I know what I'm going to do today. I'm going to take a selfie, you, right? No, it's like when you find yourself in like a stunning moment, this incredible experience, you know, in, in, in front of a sunset by the, by the sea or beside a waterfall or at a concert with a friend or whatever it might be, then you're like, oh, we need to remember this moment. Snap a selfie, right? You know, it was C.S. Lewis who wrote that our deepest experiences awaken in us a desire that can hardly find a name, a desire that the material world cannot satisfy, a desire for love or beauty or meaning, which the Bible calls glory. Our experiences awaken this desire, but, and this is what C.S. Lewis says, they are not the thing itself. That's our experiences. They are only the scent of a flower we have not found the echo of a tune we have not heard, news from a country we have never yet visited. Do you think I'm trying to weave a spell? Perhaps I am. But remember your fairy tales. Spells are used for breaking enchantments as well as for inducing them. And you and I have need for the strongest spell that, we can, that can be found to wake us from the evil enchantment of worldliness which has been laid upon us for nearly a hundred years. We remain conscious of a desire which no natural happiness will satisfy intimacy is shared experience that's why inviting someone to watch a movie or to go get a cup of coffee or even just hey let's go for a walk is can be quite a vulnerable thing at times right because when you invite someone to share an experience you're inviting them into a small step of intimacy a step closer with you and so by inviting peter james and john up the mountain jesus is inviting them into that closer relationship with him and spiritual awakening, I think, in many ways begins with an experience of God. And so when we become aware of His presence, maybe, you know, it, becomes, it comes through beauty, where a walk in the forest or a stunning piece of music just captures your mind and heart. Or, or maybe you're awakened through pain, right? Through the loss of a job, the end of a marriage, a dire diagnosis that you get. Maybe it's through change. Could be good change, where you're falling in love or the birth of a baby, or some harder change. 
Maybe it comes through reading scripture as it did for St. Augustine or, or for John Wesley whose heart was strangely warmed. It might happen in a church as it did with, uh, for Anne Lamott who against her own will found love and sobriety in Jesus and got baptized and she said, I swear it was an accident. It might happen in prison as it did for Chuck Colson. It might be quite undramatic but it happens all the time. We become aware of the reality of the unseen and awakening is, uh, Evelyn Underhill has this beautiful phrase, primarily an unselfing. Because the first time I awaken at birth, it's to my own little world where my desires and my survival are the center of the universe, right? Think about that. But, but on the mountain, we awaken to a much larger world. Our ego is decentered and we're open to genuine intimacy with God. And so Peter and James and John, they look at Jesus, he's transfigured. I mean, just try and imagine it, picture it in your mind, right? I mean, the great Old Testament blessing was the Lord make his face shine upon you in Numbers chapter six. They see it. You know, the promise of Revelation is that the saints will wear white linen, which is a symbol for moral beauty, moral integrity. They see it. There was this deep connection in the ancient world between transcendent glory and shining light. They'd bring it together. And even our day, we, we use, we, it's connected as well. We use it in phrases like when a child is born and you see a, a grandparent maybe staring down at their brand new grandchild. Do you, what do we say about the face of the grandparent? They're beaming, right? Or, or, or when, when people describe a, a bride on her wedding day, they say she's radiant, right? Notice they never say anything about the groom. I don't think anyone cares, eh? You know, like... <laughs> when Moses came down from Sinai, uh, he was not aware that his face was radiant because he had spoken with the Lord. When Aaron and all the Israelites saw Moses, they said, hey, your face is radiant, and they were afraid to come near him. That's what it says in Exodus 34. The psalmist said, those who look to God are radiant. Their faces are never covered with shame. See, light in the scriptures is energy. Light is beauty, light is purity, but with Jesus, this experience like levels up almost into a whole new experience. See, Moses saw the Shekinah glory of God and reflected it in the way that the moon reflects the light of the sun. Jesus radiated it. It came from him. His light wasn't a reflection. His was the source. John, who was on this mountain with Jesus, would later say about him, in him was life and that life was the light of all the world. There's another world, it's not far away. Things are not what they seem. And in the strange world of the kingdom of God, the frog turns out to be a prince. The ugly duckling is the beautiful swan. The crucified carpenter is indeed the king of kings and lord of lords, amen? Jesus' gospel is that in him, the kingdom of God has become available on earth. The presence of this spiritual reality is manifested repeatedly in the Old Testament through a rainbow or a shining cloud or a burning bush or a still small voice, through handwriting on a wall, through a shining cloud. Now, this transfiguration comes to an ultimate expression and the disciples are allowed for a moment to see what Jesus already knew. It was like, hey guys, we live in this God-bathed, God-permeated world. And Dallas Willard writes, puts it this way, he says, it is a world that is inconceivably beautiful and good. 
because of God and because God is always in it. It is a world in which God is continually at play and over which he constantly rejoices until our thoughts of God have found every visible thing and event glorious with his presence. The word of Jesus has not yet fully seized us. This is the quote, friends, that I've been sitting with all week. This is the reality that I go, oh, that's not true of me in the ways that I would like it to be. That's what stirred a, a hunger and awakening inside of me. Until our thoughts of God have found every visible thing and event glorious with his presence, may that be true of us. And then the transfiguration story goes on and, and, and Luke's telling of it gives this beautiful little detail. It says, Peter and his companions were very sleepy, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory. When they became fully awake, and waking up to us is this great mystery. Like we, we often fall asleep and we don't know how it happens and we wake up and that's a mystery as well. And, and when we're asleep, it's like we're dead to the world. We're, we're not conscious to what's actually going on in the world around us. We're not able to engage with the world around us. But the minute we wake up, you know, when we awaken to this world and we get to see the world around us. I once heard this story of a guy who... Um, was on an, in, you know, get, had to take this international flight and so he wanted to sleep and so uh, someone gave him some Ambien, you know, the sedative, you know, the sleeping pills, Ambien, gave him some Ambien uh, and, and he was a little bit skeptical. So he took one pill on the flight and nothing happened. And took a second pill and nothing happened. Took a third pill and washed it down with a glass of wine and, uh, and that time it worked. In fact, when he woke up, he was sitting in a strange airport terminal in a wheelchair with drool on his shirt. He had slept so hard and so long that when the plane landed, the flight attendants were unable to wake him, so they put him in a wheelchair, wheeled him off, and just let it, left him at the gate. <laughs> Sin, I think, in a lot of ways, is like spiritual ambient for us and for our souls. And because of sin, many of us, like this guy, are so asleep to the reality of God around us that it seems impossible to ever wake up. And yet with God... Nothing is impossible. See, awakening is when Jacob has an encounter with God and says, surely the Lord is in this place. I just wasn't aware of it. Awakening happens for two disciples in the village of Emmaus when the resurrected Jesus appears to them and they don't recognize him at first. All they can see is de dejection and defeat, but he sits with them at an ordinary table and breaks bread and gives it to them and then their eyes were opened is what it says in Luke 24. And Luke uses the phrase from Genesis after the man and the woman disobey God only this time eyes get open to God and hope and life beyond death and they say were not our hearts burning within us? Paul writes wake up sleeper rise from the dead and Christ will shine on you. Christ's light serves to both awaken us from sleep and to illuminate our wakefulness. Because with awakening comes the possibility of not just seeing the light, but of becoming part of it. Jesus himself told ordinary listeners who are by no means, who by no means would have thought of themselves as spiritually radiant. He said to them, you are the light of the world. Let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Jesus says, let your light shine. He doesn't say, try harder to make your light shine. 
You know, it's like the, you turn the light on at home, right? It's not like, it's not like you, you, you flick it on and you, your light bulb's like trying to turn on, right? It doesn't take much trying to turn on. You, you flick the light, it just glows. And it glows based on what's happening inside of them, right? Paul writes that when we live according to God's light in our lives, the natural outflow, the result is that you will shine like stars in the sky, he says in Philippians 2. Shine like stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life. So now that he's fully awake, Peter's like, oh, time to enter in and participate. And he speaks up. He says, actually, the last time that Matthew records Peter speaking is when Jesus um, tells him not to talk about the cross. And Jesus, uh, oh, Peter tells Jesus, hey, let me correct you, Jesus. You know, don't talk about the cross. That would never happen to you. And, and Jesus responds by saying, get behind me, Satan. You remember that bit? He's like, you're a stumbling block to me. You have not in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. And so we might imagine that six days later, over those six days, Peter would have been like, you know, working on his mouth a little bit. You know, know, like maybe trying to like work on his game a little bit. For six days, he's probably telling himself, man, I've got to be more careful about what I say. Man, I I, I can't just shoot from the hip like that, man. I'm not going to talk, you know, just to hear myself speak. And then here's what comes next. Peter says to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I will put up three shelters for you. You know, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. And Mark's telling, he, he adds this little commentary. He did not know what to say. They were so frightened. Apparently saying nothing didn't enter his mind. So um, you can see him trying to work on it, right? He's like, Lord, good start, you know? <laughs> it's good for us to be here. I mean, it's a little bland, but okay, you know. If you wish, oh, that sounds like Jesus praying in the garden, not my will. That's, that's good, that's good, right? I'll make three booths for you. One for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. Huh? What? It's hard to know where to begin this one. Like, this is just bizarre. Like, one problem with this statement is that Peter misses completely the unique identity of Jesus and puts him almost on par with Moses and Elijah, right? Another problem is that that with mountaintop experiences is the same that we all experience today where, where Peter's almost like, hey, let's set up camp. Let's stay here. Let's make it all about the experience rather than about God himself. And Peter's also trying to, maybe the other way, is that he's actually just trying to take control of the situation, but he was not invited up the mountain to take control of the situation. He wasn't invited up because he'd done something right, and, and, and nor was he commanded off the mountain because he'd done something wrong. Peter doesn't realize that we're not in charge of the mountain. God is. And to make matters worse, it's almost like you see a little bit of ego coming through for Peter too. Like he says, hey, he doesn't say like, we will make booths for you, right? He says, no, no, I will make a booth for you. Like too bad the other guys didn't think of it first, right? And then there's just the madness of it all. Like what, what are Jesus, Moses, and Elijah going to do with booths? Like are they setting up a stall at the flea market? Going to sell bobbleheads or something? Like, I mean... Peter's blunders reveal this important truth for each, each one of us, I think, that awakening doesn't mean we understand and think and say and do the right things. Actually, it's often the contrary. Awakening usually starts with getting things wrong. But the good news is God is patient with us. And so if we read on in verse 5, it says, While Peter was still speaking, a bright cloud covered them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. There's this beautiful little detail in there. While Peter was still speaking, it's as if God's saying, Hey, Peter. Right? Like just, uh, you know, like, 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 uh, hey, let it rest for just a minute, Peter. Like, um, 
you know, if God had waited for Peter to talk himself out, I reckon everyone would have been gone. They would have been like, I'm out. <laughs> Imagine Moses and Elijah asking Jesus, like, really, after 400 years, this is the best you got? Come on. Um, and God says now what, what he said to, when Jesus was baptized. He's like, this is my son whom I love. In him I'm well pleased. And in that moment, when we awaken, ultimately, I think we awaken to love. The single fact that the Father most wants the world to know is how lovable the Son is. That the Father loves the Son. We're to love the Son. All that we have in the Son. In fact, the voice adds one little phrase here that wasn't true in Jesus' baptism when John baptized him, which Peter and James and John are now ready to hear, where he says, listen to him. When? Every moment. Where? Every place. Why? He speaks with truth and love. How? With a surrendered spirit. Do what he says. See, remember, awakening comes to us, if it comes at all, as a gift. And you might have experienced it like this, where maybe you have a season when you long to worship God and prayer comes easily, you know, and God seems close enough to touch and old temptations that would, you know, maybe drag you down like lust or to drink or to gossip, they now just don't even appeal to you. They're distasteful. You know, you're motivated to read the Bible. You're hungering after good and true and noble thoughts and you feel energized for life and you want to be a better spouse or better parent or better friend and you're optimistic about the day and you find yourself grateful for simple gifts and laughter just comes easily. That's awakening. Savor it and enjoy it. You know, thank God for it learn from it, build a, you know, one of those little altars, like a pile of stones so that you can remember it. But don't insist on keeping it. Don't demand it, don't worship it, don't tie your obedience to it. Listen to him. That is, do what Jesus says. In other words, the response that God is looking for us, in us, is not, not to relocate to the mountain permanently and to set up camp. It's not a continual vision of the transfiguration. That vision comes when it comes for a moment as a gift and then it goes. And then the right response to awakening is actually obedience. Listen to him, obey. And we're given moments of closeness to God. Our calling is not to try and prolong them and just live in the sweet zone. It's actually to surrender our wills. You know, the first three steps that, you know, in, in Alcoholics Anonymous are, are a wonderful picture of this. And the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous is like transformational in people's lives. The first three is this. In step one, I awaken to my problem. We're basically, it's coming to the reality that my life is unmanageable and I am powerless over my great enemy is the language that they use for addiction. In step two, I awaken to my hope. I come to believe that God can restore me to moral sanity I think is the language and in step three I surrender so it's awaken to my problem awaken to my hope and then I surrender I turn my life and my will over to God this is the proper response on the mountaintop it isn't to try and stay there and just live in the sweet zone it's actually to listen to the son and do what he says to turn over our whole lives to him and when I picture this scene in my mind, it seems almost too wonderful to me. Like, I, I wish, I wish, I wish, I wish I could hear a voice from heaven that would remove all doubt and would just ground my faith forever. But whatever was going on, it did not produce joy and certainty in the hearts of the disciples. Because when the disciples heard this, it says in verse 6, they fell face down to the ground, terrified. 
they didn't want to see anymore. They didn't want to hear. They weren't glorified. They were petrified. And they were already disciples. When we awaken to fear, we awaken to fear as well as to glory. This is, this is the words of Isaiah, you know, where he saw the beauty and the goodness of God when the lift, lid was like lifted off the terrarium of his life and his cry was, woe to me, for I am ruined. I'm a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips and yet my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. This is why awakening is not just something that happens to us at the beginning of our spiritual lives, but why we need the gift of awakening each day over and over again. In Jesus' day, it was, it was the people who considered themselves the most spiritually mature, shall we say, whom he regarded as the most blind. Those who needed saving, the most thought they needed at least. Maybe God only gives me as much of him as I'm ready for, is maybe the truth. And after the disciples fell face down, Jesus came and touched them. Get up, he said, don't be afraid. And so when they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus. Jesus touches each one and he tells them to get up. And falling on your face is what you do when you die. But getting up again, that's what you do when you get resurrected. The kingdom of God has come near. The voice said that they were to listen to Jesus. And the first thing Jesus says is not to condemn them, not to be harsh and severe. Rather, he says, don't be afraid. It's me. You know, it's still me. It's just me. You know, like now you know, you know. And so Moses is gone and Elijah is gone and the cloud is gone and he's not glowing anymore. He's just regular old Jesus. And the lesson is that the law, Moses, and the prophets, Elijah, all point directly to Jesus. Jesus is the one who gets them, who understands perfectly what their heart was and their intent was. And, and so now they have to leave the mountaintop and they have to go back to their regular lives. There's work to be done, you know? And in fact, the very next event in their lives is to go down from the mountain and meet a man whose son is suffering greatly and, and, and experience the disciples' failure to help him out. They go from the mountaintop, not to another mountaintop, but to ordinary life and work and demands and even failure. But here's the thing, Jesus goes with them. Jesus goes with them. And there will be other mountains. You know, in the middle of the desert in uh, California, in Imperial County, there's this mountain that really doesn't belong there. It's an enormous piece of folk art, you might call it, called Salvation Mountain. I think we've got a photo. It's uh, several stories high, made of like adobe and straw and dirt and junk, and then all topped off with a cross and adorned with sayings like, Jesus is the way, and God forgives sinners, and God never fails. And, and, and it was constructed over decades by a man named Leonard Knight. And I think we have a photo of him on here as well, um, who spent many years of his life doing odd jobs around you know, the US and for some reason decided that the world needed Salvation Mountain. And so he labored year in and year out through you know, 45 degree heat in the summer you know, in the desert and used over 100,000 gallons of paint. And he was this ordinary unschooled man and, and his hope was to inspire people to know that God is love and no one seems to know what to make of this thing. Is it art? Is it kitsch or is it landfill like um, yet people find themselves strangely drawn to it over and over like people year in and year out thousands and thousands of people they make pilgrimage to go see this thing um, and, and from all around the world and oftentimes they'll leave some small item as a symbol 
of surrender, as a symbol almost of giving themselves to God. I think the next picture shows, you know, like places where they'll bring something and they'll like lay it down and leave it as like a symbol of giving themselves to God. You know, Leonard Knight died, you know, early, you know, several years ago, but his mountain still stands. And in 2017, the rock star Keisha recorded uh, a song after experiencing hurt that was this deep and personal and public song, and it's called Praying. Um, it's raw, it's searing, it's honest. I don't highly condone it, but it begins with this voiceover that tries to make sense of the pain. Um, she says, if there is a God or whatever, why have I been abandoned? And then she sings to the one who has hurt her that she hopes that he's praying as well. And so in the midst of all this hurt and confusion, the ache for justice, the possibility of something beyond revenge, and she filmed the music video as Salvation Mountain. A little bit bizarre. But I think it points to the reality that people realize there is another world. You can go to the last one, Iris. It's not that far away. Things are not what they seem. But awakening is only the beginning. And so as we come to respond to God's word to us this morning, we'll come and we'll receive from the table, receive communion. But I wonder if, like I just had a sense this week as I was praying that, that actually for some, maybe this is a awakening moment, that at the start of the year, God wants to wake you up that actually he's breaking through, he's coming to you, he's showing his loveliness to you this morning. And it's a chance for you to awaken to that reality. I think for others, maybe it's a chance to go, oh, I am already awakened to that reality. And even though I'm not on the mountaintop, the truth is God wants his love and light to shine out from me to others. And that that's the reality he wants to awaken you to this morning. Maybe even specific people or places that he wants to place in your mind and heart. So I want to pray into that, and then we'll come and receive from the Lord's table together. Lord, I do thank you uh, for your word. We thank you that actually the truth is, in different ways and, uh, uh, and it experiences many, many, many people around this world today are hungering for you. They sense, man, this world is not all that there is. There's something more going on. And so in the name of Jesus, I pray that you reveal yourself, Lord. Wake them up out of that dead sleep. Wake them up to the, the reality of the kingdom of God. Wake them up to the reality of who you are, Jesus, and your loveliness. Lord, I pray for those here this morning that your spirit is already pressing on. Lord, as you are stirring them to wake up, Lord, may they wake up and behold you in your goodness and in your love. May they find you, like the Father says, incredibly lovable. And may this be a defining moment in their lives as they receive grace anew and afresh this morning. Lord, I pray it be a framing moment that frames the rest of their life as they move from this moment into tomorrow and this week and next month and 2024, all that it holds. And Lord, for each of us who have had that, those wake-up moments, again, may this be awakening afresh for each of us. Awakening afresh to the the truth of your love and your goodness and your grace in our lives, your love that you want shared, that actually we now get to participate, that we get to help awaken others by letting your light shine through us. We thank you that we don't have to try for that, we don't have to strive to make it so that actually we, we just say, yes, Lord, we're, we're surrendered to you.